The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Next Generation episode, Who Watches the Watchers? I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stiga. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Folks, be sure to get your very own Secrets of Star Trek t-shirt or phone case or coffee mug or all kinds of different things by visiting sqpn.com slash merch, M-E-R-C-H. We have a great design that features the three of us and the Starship Enterprise. And every time I wear it, my my kids laugh because it shows me hanging off the uh, nacelle mm. of the Enterprise. And uh, it's 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 great. So go check it out. Even if, go to the the link just to see the image because uh, Micah Murphy, who did the, all the designs for our t-shirts, uh, just did such a great job. So check it out. Uh, all right. The This episode, as I mentioned, is called Who Watches the Watchers? And so, Jimmy, could you give us a recap? This week, Picard and the gang arrive at a planet where some anthropologists are secretly watching some proto-Vulcans who are in the Bronze Age. But there's an emergency, and the holographic projector they're using to hide themselves fails, revealing their location. This leads to one of the locals discovering them, only to fall and be severely injured. Dr. Crusher beams him up to save his life. But when she tries to wipe his memory, it doesn't work. And the local saw enough while aboard the Enterprise that he comes to believe that Picard is super powerful and a god. This idea infects the locals, and they start forming a religion. This comes to the attention of the crew because Riker and Troy are in disguise and have come down to find a missing anthropologist. They try to convince the locals that uh, the local guy's experience was just a dream and he shouldn't worship Picard as a god, but then the locals find the missing anthropologist, which confirms that it wasn't just a dream. Troy distracts the locals so Riker can secretly get the anthropologist alone for an emergency beam-up, but the plan goes wrong and Troy is captured. The locals are afraid that by letting the anthropologist go, they may have angered the Picard, so they debate whether to punish Troy in order to avert Picard's wrath. Unwilling to have a religion founded in his name, Picard beams uh, up the alien leader to convince her that he's not a god. He tells her about technology and lets her watch one of the anthropologists conveniently die in sickbay to show her that he doesn't have the power of life and death. He then accompanies the leader lady back to the planet, where they try to convince the locals that he's not a god. And this is harder than you might think, but to prove it, Picard lets himself be shot with a bow and arrow, and that finally convinces the proto-Vulcans. Afterwards, they shut down their hidden anthropology station and leave the planet. The end. So the title of this episode is taken from the Latin phrase, Quiz Custodiat Ipsos Custodes which was first used by the... Nice try. Thank you. I know it's... <laughs> Anybody, if anyone would like to say it in a way that uh, is uh, appropriate, I would, be, I would appreciate it. Quis custodiat ipsos custodes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and uh, the, the Roman poet Juvenal... Juvenal? Juvenal. Juvenal. Mm-hmm. A first or second century Roman satirist. So uh, who watches the watchers? Yeah. 
or who guards the guards or mm-hmm. words to that effect. Right. Right. And, uh, or who, who custodians the custodians. So the, uh, yeah, the idea of a duck blind as, as the Starfleet observes a primitive species will come up again in Star Trek. In the movies. Insurrection. Yeah. Yes. Um, kind of an interesting that they, they went back to that. Um, it's a common trope in sci-fi, the, you know, the advanced species that gets worshipped as gods. I mean, this is kind of uh, the, the Arthur Clarke maxim of uh, any sufficiently advanced technologies indistinguishable from magic and that sort of thing. So It's uh, against my programming to impersonate a deity. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. It's, Star Wars does it. Stargate uh, had an early episode that did almost exactly this. Not, not quite the same thing. That was more intentional, where the SG team, uh, the leader, became... Um, and in fact, even more, Stargate is all about advanced technology yes. people pretending to be gods. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I was thinking more of the SG po- folks be pretending, but yeah, the whole thing yeah, is. Yeah, you got the Gwauld and the ancients and everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that can, and you can kind of go back to Apocalypse Now, where, you know, in that, um, there was a, a U.S. Army colonel pretending to be a god for a primitive tribe. So it's a, it's a fairly common trope, a common story. Um, and so yeah. they're doing but it again here. more important than that, Vasquez Rocks are back. <laughs> yes. That's my very next note. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we talked recently about, and I'm forgetting the order in which we're doing things, but I think just before we did lower, uh, the season of Lower Decks, we did Arena, the original series, yep. which all took place outside at Vasquez Rocks. And we are back at the arena for Mintaka 3. Well, it was funny because I missed that discussion on arena. So I went back and watched it before I watched this episode. I was like, wait a minute. I just saw that place. <laughs> I think it might have been literally the same place where, where Kirk had bo- yeah. thrown a boulder at him by, by the, uh, the uh, Gorn is, uh, we see in this episode. So, yeah, it's really familiar. Yeah, according to Memory Alpha, the cast and crew spent two days shooting in 100-degree weather at mm. Vasquez Rocks. And due to the, it says, due to the presence of local snakes, scorpions, and bees, no attractant such as deodorant or perfume could be used by the actors. And one of the things I remember from when I visited Vasquez Rocks a number of years ago was the signs warning you about rattlesnakes. So, yeah. It's amazing that, like, that must be some really good location because they're always <laughs> filming there despite that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's not far. It, I mean, it's in the LA metro area and it's situated in such a way that you can shoot at it without it looking like you're in the la metro area and yeah. it looks kind of otherworldly it doesn't look like mm-hmm. a typical mountain yeah. chain or something like that and it's kind of funny like the idea that we we get so used to the sets like the locations used in so many tv shows that our mindset of what something like what an alien planet should look like is mm-hmm. formed by these places near la or Vancouver, or New York City, <laughs> in that sense. Well, it's kind of funny that that, that that happens. What you mean, all the planets around the Stargates aren't exactly like uh, British Columbia forest? <laughs> yeah. Yes, all the planets that, in the Stargate universe are uh, pine trees, uh, yeah, and X-Files, and that, too. <laughs> and that is one advantage now that they're, they're doing the, the, the new uh, filming Digital where they basically set. have a giant LCD screen behind them on the set where they can do more creative things with how the the worlds look. Yes, it can be anywhere and look like anything. And I think that's to our benefit. Yeah. They can also do color replacement in a way they couldn't back when SG-1 was originally mm-hmm. being filmed. So now you could take this, the, yeah. the British Columbia and be out in the forest and make all the trees blue right. or something. Without making the team look orange. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so... 
yeah, we have this uh, this anthropological team, ex- you know, uh, observing these primitives here, the primitive tribe, um, and it just seems the whole thing seems irresponsible and unethical because yeah. if if you're discovered at all, you've contaminated them, like. I don't think we mm-hmm. would tolerate this today, right? I mean, if, if there was a – there are tribes in the Amazon. There's a tribe that's on an island off of India that these – they're, they're in, isolated oh, from the, the modern Sentinelese. world. Yeah, the yeah. Sentinelese. Do not go to Sentinel Island. They will kill you. Yes, yeah. that happened recently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and this is also contrary to modern anthropological practice where you, you make contact and you go in and you embed – in the culture that you're studying and get them to teach you your ways. So this is not how anthropologists do it in the real world, but in the real world, we don't have a prime directive. Right. Well, right. They, and they did this, they, they did this at times and, and it obviously things like this happened in real, real world too, in the where past. they would go on. Yeah. In the yeah. past where they would go and do duck blinds and stuff like that. And they'd get caught. Right. It, it, yeah. And it just seems like they've regressed in, in their time or they've gotten arrogant in that our technology will sufficiently hide us. Uh, but yeah um yeah my first note on the episode is another stupid prime directive episode (laughs) yeah well no it's another prime directive episode my second note is stupid anti-religion parable yeah yes yes and there is quite a number of anti-religion statements that go through this yeah yeah and they didn't need to be there this is just gene roddenberry wanting to take pokes at religion um or you know his it, it at least flows from his approach. Um, but the idea, I mean, the idea of Picard not wanting to be worshipped as a god mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. wanting a religion founded in his name and all that that would entail, all that's perfectly reasonable. Mm-hmm. It's really just, I don't know, like less than five lines in this that you could just delete. And it would be perfectly understandable, perfectly reasonable. It wouldn't be anti-religion. Right. But... They've got to get their digs in there. Right. Yeah. Well, now I'll bring those up as we go because, yeah, they're, they're kind of, they kind of stand out a bit. Um, we start yeah. with, the, the problem starts with the, the, the reactor powering the duck blind station <laughs> goes bad. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So they're on their way to the planet, which is called Mintaka 3. And Jordy comes to the bridge and says he's got the parts ready. But he doesn't know why they need this much power for their reactor. And this is just, this is bad writing. Because <laughs> what it does is it makes Geordi look incompetent. Yes. Right? You know, he's, he's he, because then they get the, oh, well, it's because they need a holographic generator for their duck blind. And it's like, oh, anthropology, okay, all we're doing is feeding the audience information mm-hmm. at the expense of making Geordi look stupid. Why not so, put that in the captain's log, which is the whole point of doing a captain's log at the top of the episode? Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, so well, it, it, you could say it's to get Jordy a line so mm-hmm. that LeVar Burton can get paid for the episode. Yeah, but they could, they could have done a line like, we've got the part that they need to fix their holographic generator right, for the right. duck blind. Yeah. I mean, yeah. something as simple as that. Also, the, uh, the, the proto-Vulcans are... They're portrayed as very reasonable and peaceful. Mm-hmm. And this is because, apparently, the writers of Next Gen had forgotten their Vulcan history. Yes. Mm. Because Vulcans did not become peaceful until the time of Surak. Vulcans in the Bronze Age should be incredibly violent. 
Yes. And right. these people are not. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, are they trying to posit the idea of parallel evolution idea? You know? Um, well, they don't, ad- they don't address that, but they hear. But in the original series, in the episode Return to Tomorrow, they went to a planet called Arita or something like that, and the Aritans were an ancient race. This is the one where they have the Sargon in the in the in the mind globe right. thing, and Henuk in the mind globe, and they do some body swapping. But according to Mister Spock in that episode, the Aritans' previous colonization of the galaxy could explain some aspects of Vulcan prehistory. So these people could also be offshoots of the Aridans and have some Vulcanoid heritage. Also, later in um, in Next Gen, we'll have the chase, where it turns out that there was a race of progenitors that seeded the galaxy with the raw materials for intelligent life that produced all of the races we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. But that wouldn't explain specifically the Vulcans. Yeah. I did feel like they they tried to to make it like this was a a, a later parallel evolution of Vulcan of a Vulcan like species, but they it really kind of fell flat. They really yeah. they just kind of threw a line out there saying something like they're very much on a parallel track to the Vulcans, and that's kind of about all they said. It it feels like what we needed is a rational rational species, a, ra- a culture that we will re- immediately recognize as being rational and non superstitious, and and that's Vulcans because they're logical. And uh, that will make it all the more troubling that they would fall back into a uh, dark superstition of religion. And, and I mm-hmm. think that's, that was the shortcut that they took, and it, uh, not all that great, well, I think. And they even made the, the, the makeup to look kind of Romulan-like, which, of course, we know the Romulans are offshoots yeah. from the Vulcans. You know, so they, they, they look very similar to how TNG had dealt with uh, Romulans. Really dislike the TNG romulan makeup it just it just why hmm. why change it why just why the head that awful heavy brow thing was just weird and yeah i just would rather if they just stuck with romulans and vulcans look alike and just go with it <laughs> stop mm-hmm. doing that um but it, they messed with the klingons too so whatever um well the klingons were an upgrade yeah right. the first yeah. time yes that's true and that um, predates tng so so the reactor has failed, yes. and they've got enough battery power for hour for a few hours, and the Enterprise is going to get there in twenty minutes, and then their batteries blow up, mm. and that's what causes the crisis. The Enterprise has to get there super fast, so they do, and and then they beam down to help the people in the room where the batteries blew up in the duck blind, and even though the reactor is is not functioning and the batteries have exploded. Everything is electrified, (laughs) and you can't touch stuff without it shocking you, which is a major plot point, because it shocks the local guy, which is what causes him to fall. So how does this work? You've got an electrified metal frame for this duck blind, even though you have no reactor and no batteries? Yeah, like the, uh, the supercharged. <laughs> uh, apparently, well, first of all, apparently they forgot about things like grounding straps. You <laughs> yeah. know that can you can put into a building that will ground it if something like this happens. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you know maybe they, I guess they must have had another bank of batteries that didn't blow up. Who knows? 
I like that the the one guy who like the the, the anthropologist who you know, ends up they having to rescue later is like his solution is dive out the window. Which, yeah, <laughs> which is probably not a bad solution, I suppose, when it's everything's electrified and shooting stuff around. Uh, and then he apparently wanders off, grievously injured, uh, and uh, that's when our crew beams down with no protection whatsoever. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, put on a suit. Uh, and uh, they start fixing things, and then L- Liko and Oji, the this father mm-hmm. and daughter of the these these uh, Mintakins, they show up outside. They see they're they're doing something with a sundial reading. Yeah, yeah. the daughter Oji has been appointed the official record keeper for their village, and so she's got to look at a sundial. Apparently, like at morning and and at noon and maybe at dusk or something to, for record keeping purposes, they're doing an astronomy project calendar thing. Yeah, um, which is not unreasonable. You did have, I mean, you do have calendars in human history that are based on on astronomical observations. Like, mm-hmm. um, for example, the Jewish calendar um, was a lunar solar calendar where every month began with the new moon. And if you read the Talmud, it's actually fascinating. They have all these rules, because what, at least in the way it worked was, at the temple in Jerusalem, you would have people who, were, who would sight the new moon, and then they would tell the priests, and then the priests would announce that the new month began. Mm-hmm. And then they would spread the word to other local Jewish communities, you know, in Judea. And they have all these rules for for how to tell for how to test the new moon witnesses you know i mean obviously they they need to be of good eyesight and so forth but you have these questions you're supposed to ask them like okay if um if you like which way was the crescent of the of the new moon pointing hmm. and if he gets it wrong he has said nothing and you've got to have it confirmed by like two or three people and they have to meet these qualifications and so Having having someone actually, you know, being like an official timekeeper who does observations is that's reasonable. Mm. Yep. Uh, what if it was cloudy? I suppose. You well, just, wait. This is a big problem uh, with this <laughs> kind of system, actually. And in fact, um, there have been studies done that the ancient moon sighting stuff doesn't really work that great um, <laughs> because of cloudiness or human eyesight misidentifying things in the sky right, as right. the moon, which are not the moon, but you kind of look like it when you're trying to discern something really faint. Yeah. Right. Like just a little wisp of cloud or something. And we've actually, there are archaeoastronomers have gone back and um, and looked at records and, and done calculations. And it's like a third of the time you're going to be wrong about <laughs> the exact appearance of the new moon. Right. Sure. Right. Cause they didn't have telescopes. That's Galileo. Yeah. Um, now, um, Liko yeah. and Oji are both actors that have gone on to do other things that people are more familiar with them. Uh huh. Yes. Liko was played by Ray Weiss, who was a VP in a, a season of vice president, in a season of 24. That's probably what oh. he's best known. He's been on a lot of things. Yeah. Oh, he's known for something else. He's Leland Palmer from Twin Peaks. Oh, that's right. Yes, and and so it was. I'm a I'm a watched all of Twin Peaks, and it's I, I was immediately wait. That's Ray Wise. Yeah, <laughs> and the the human MacGuffin in this episode, the anthropologist they've got to find who goes mm-hmm. missing. Mm-hmm. His name is Palmer. Oh, that's and funny. I was, and and I was going, wait, Leland Palmer, and there's is this a Twin Peaks reference? And apparently <laughs> not. 
No. Because this episode came out in 1989, and Twin Peaks didn't come out until 1990. Wow. Oh, wow. That's just a cool coincidence. <laughs> yeah, but knowing knowing what happens with Leland Palmer in Twin Peaks, it's like, oh, wow, this is creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and I the other one? I won't spoil it for, for people who haven't seen Twin Peaks. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, uh, OG, which she's most known for, this Pam- Pamela Segal is, is the name of the actress. She was the voice of Bobby Hill on King of the Hill. And there was a couple of points oh, where wow. you could, I could hear it. I could recognize oh. her voice. Whereas I could, it's like, yeah, that, that is definitely Bobby Hill's voice. It's so funny. So many of those animated shows, the, the, the young boys are, they're voiced by yeah. female yep. actresses. Bart Simpson's yeah. another Bart one. Bart Simpson's like that. Yeah. 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 Oh, that is funny. So uh, both, the, both of them are actors that have gone on to bigger things from this yeah. episode. She's apparently done so, other live action stuff too, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So after the holographic duck blind comes down, they can see the station up there, mm. the anthropology station, and Liko climbs up to investigate it, and he touches the mysteriously electrified <laughs> metal frame of the window mm-hmm. and gets shocked and falls and injured, which causes Dr. Crusher to spring into action and save him by beaming him up to the Enterprise. In full and, sight of his daughter. <laughs> in, in full sight of his daughter. And and Picard on the Enterprise is just uh, totally uptight about this. Yep, he is so cold. It's like, why didn't you let him die? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so this Doctor Crusher is yeah. because we were responsible for his injuries, right? Yep. And I, I, was, I was like, so who's right here? Like, so Picard has the the prime directive on his side. So legally. You know, he, he's empowered to, you know, they, as Starfleet, are empowered to let this guy die in order to, to save the, you know, to, to keep the prime directive. Um, but ethically, morally, I mean. Ethically, morally, you save the guy's life. Right. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say. And, this is the problem the, with the prime directive. And as the lead doctor later points out, as soon as that duck mine went down, the prime directive has already been violated. Yeah. Right. The damage is done. Right, there's nothing... It's, it's I mean, just a matter of containment at this point, and right. saving this guy's life and trying to wipe his memory is the obvious thing to do. Because one of my problems with this is, okay, so if, it's, if the Prime Director says it's okay for let this guy die, hum, to contain the contamination, what about killing anyone who's seen the, the, mm-hmm. the stuff? Like, would that also be allowed? I mean, it's, when you start... You know, pulling down the moral framework here, mm-hmm. you know, you so anything becomes allowable to safeguard the prime directive because the prime directive is the most important thing ever. Uh, no, because in the end here, we actually show that the prime directive is not really, you know, all the most important thing ever because we can expose the, the these people to advanced technology and fix it at the same time and not have it be a terrible yeah. loss. What I like about this episode is after the contamination has occurred and after Liko gets back to the planet, having seen Picard and the way everyone on the Enterprise sucks up to him, you know, he concludes <laughs> he's a god, and um, is how logical the Mintakans are as they mm-hmm. work through and debate this idea of religion. And it's like they're actually being very logical in how they do that. And I like that. Yeah, that was good. Uh, I, I, I also, a. This is a problem with all of Star Trek, which is, for some reason, Liko can understand everything everyone is saying on the Enterprise when he's on there, you know, in his half-conscious state. Like, Even though he has no universal translator, so, right. right. Yeah, yeah, it's a Time Lord gift. 
Yeah, right. exactly. A gift the of the Enterprise. The Enterprise bestows on anyone who comes aboard. Um, the Enterprise's telepathic circuits. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I mean, there could be, if you're Dr. Crusher and you're treating him, you could give him a temporary universal translator for treatment purposes in case you need to ask diagnostic questions and so forth or yeah. tell him, reassure him, this will not hurt you. I'm trying mm-hmm. to help you, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Or you could infer that he just realized everyone was sucking up to Picard based on their body language. Although he references specific things Picard says that other people yeah. say, like about reviving okay. someone from death and that sort of stuff, um, or what he interprets as reviving from death. Um, but in, in, any, in any case, this seeing the Enterprise it revives this religious belief, the myths that they knew, the stories that they knew of the Overseer, which was their god, and it kind of revives us. And so then they have to send... Troy and Riker down to go retrieve the missing anthropologist. Uh, and just like in Strange New World's premiere episode, we temporarily alter their appearance, although this time it's probably plastic and not, you know, genetic <laughs> changes yeah. in that one. Um, also, they have subcutaneous uh, communicators, which is mm-hmm. an idea from the, from the uh, novels. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it first appears, and it makes a lot of sense. So right. at least... You know, you're in constant audio communication. They can hear up on the Enterprise everything that's happening around you. Right. Right. Um, the uh, Another problem, by the way, universal translator problem is, is, so they've got universal translators, but how do they match their lips up to the, you know. We don't talk about these things. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. I just, I watch it and I go, but, but. I know. I'm, holographic I'm screen. Hol- holographic <laughs> yeah. screen across their mouth so it looks right. That's what it is. Okay. So uh, one thing I want to point out <laughs> that uh, Memory Alpha points out is that every time Riker goes undercover, it goes bad. First contact, <laughs> frame of mind, and preemptive strike. All things like he goes undercover and everything goes to heck and he's <laughs> they, have, they have to you know pull him out of the fire. Uh, so just no, no sending Riker on these undercover operations anymore. I, I will say Troy obviously had fun with it, at least at first when, you know, talking about, you know, the woman goes first and all that, you know, yes. she actually got to show some personality, which was kind of mm-hmm. nice. That is, yeah, she get, as the seasons went on, she got a little bit more personality than they, than the, uh, they started with. Uh, I do have to kind of call out their lame attempt to gaslight them in Takins uh, about mm. the, uh, it was just a dream. It was just a dream. Of course. <laughs> it's like, a shared and, dream well, between the father and daughter, nonetheless. Yeah. Which is not impossible with Vulcans since they're telepathic. True. I mean, that could be a fringe phenomenon that could happen among Vulcans. Yes. Yes. Um, but they're these, these strangers who show up, um, and start, you know, blabbing about, oh, no, that's couldn't possibly be true. And, and like, like, who are you again? <laughs> like, yeah. would be the natural reaction, but okay. We're cloth traders, we told you. <laughs> right. Um, and but then, we're not carrying any cloth. Yeah, we get these small bundles, mm-hmm. uh, our samples. Uh, yeah. So then we have uh, uh, Riker's botched rescue of Palmer, which he eventually gets him away, you know, although they're just, he's discovered as they're, you know, as he's running away with Palmer. And, um, the, uh, He's got him in a fireman carry hold. Yeah, yep. and he keeps running around the corner. This guy's chasing him with a bow and arrow, and he with this really cool modern compound bow. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Riker keeps going around a corner, and where you should say beat us up, and, but he doesn't until they find this t- little hidey hole that they sneak into uh, and beam up. But it, yeah, it was kind of an annoying. Well, chase. They're, they're, the whole point is they're trying not to beam up in front of them, right? right? But he keeps going, like going out of sight where he could 
beam out, but you know, I, yeah. I, I, well, I mean, maybe he doesn't really so far the, close behind the guy. Well, this is this is though where they always had to stop and then be beamed up. You, yeah. know, you never see him running and get beamed up mid run. Yeah, that's sort of a new Trek thing. The the newer shows. Um, so we have um, L- uh, Liko. I keep calling him Loki. Liko keeps making these ridiculous leaps of logic. Like he, we need to appease the Picard by harming Troy. We like he, he he like decides these things about what the Picard is going to want based on nothing really except his own fears. Well, it's it, yeah, but it, it, so the di- I have in my notes that the dialogue is flat a lot in yeah. this episode. This is a third season Trek episode, and so it's, you know, it's the writers haven't fully hit their stride yet. Mm-hmm. But it's reasonable that he would have that as a question, because he knows Picard wanted Palmer found, mm-hmm. and they found Palmer, and they were keeping him for the Picard. And then these people have helped help Palmer escape. Is, is well, the Picard wanted him found. Is that going to cause a problem? You know, that's a reasonable question. Now, Lico is written in this weird, almost Twin Peaks way, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, on the dialogue level. But um, yeah, but it's a reasonable it's a reasonable question to ask. And then you have the other characters, you know, providing other native perspectives, raising other reasonable interpretations. Right. I was going to say, you know, he he alternates between very logical and reasonable to crazy Looney Tunes fanatic back to logical and reasonable. And it's just yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, he goes back and forth. And then so then we have um, the Dr. Baron, the, uh, the he's the head anthropologist. And he, this is he where he's way more reasonable than Picard is. <laughs> well, <laughs> as an anthropologist, he actually probably probably knows a little bit about the prime directive and, and this sort of thing. And he points out, yes, the damage is done. You, they've already started a religion, and he he tells Picard, "Give them a creed, <laughs> give them a yeah. give them a, for, a, a you know a framework of belief, so that this religion does not immediately become destructive and violent or whatever. Give them a, a creed that they can follow that is good for them." Then, and Picard totally rejects that idea. Yeah, so he beams up Nuria, who's the leader of the community. And she immediately, when he says, hi, I'm Jean-Luc Picard, she immediately prostrates herself. Yes. And he's like, no, 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 get up, get up. And she's like, why does it not please you? And he's like, I do not deserve it. Mm-hmm. Which is a great line. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it also is, this is, I mean, for me, this was reminiscent of what happens in the book of Acts when um, Paul and Barnabas, is it Lyconia they're in? Um, they heal a paralyzed person, and everyone concludes that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and they conclude that Barnabas is Zeus, which I guess tells us something about what Barnabas must have looked like. Yeah, and that and that Paul is Hermes because he's the one who talks so much. You know, Hermes <laughs> was the messenger of the gods, right? And a priest of Zeus is there and like brings out a bull and is going to sacrifice it to them. Yeah, and they're like, "Dudes, we are just men, okay?" <laughs> and so this was kind of Picard's equivalent moment of that. We could still have a barbecue if you're really into that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Picard actually has a line uh, in here around this point where he, I think it's to Doctor Baron, he says. Um, Abandoning, abandoning belief in the supernatural, 
was an achievement for the Mintakins, and that to believe in God is to go back to the dark ages of ignorance, superstition, and fear. And this is one of those lines you're talking about, Jimmy, that's like, wow, that is so anti-religion, anti-what like, anti yeah. Trek will eventually embrace with Bajor, but... Yeah, it's also like, guys, I thought you were tolerant of other people's cultures. <laughs> yeah, mm. right. And that, that, that's definitely a thanks, Gene Roddenberry. We appreciate that. Yeah, yeah it feels heavy-handed and out of character. Mm -hmm. And and certainly, yeah. you know, there are there are plenty of religions that are not, you know, including Christianity, that are not dark ages of ignorance. It's it's so such a, a mischaracterization well, of of actual history to begin with. Well, it's the idea of calling it the Dark Ages in the first place instead of like the Middle Ages or something like that. Right. Medieval mm -hmm. Ages, because it was dark, not dark because of religion. It was <laughs> yeah. dark because of religion, keeping the information from the people and stuff like that. And it's like, no, right. it was a very difficult time and religion did everything it could to keep things, you know, like yeah. knowledge during it. Well, and in fact, there was a lot of, I mean, today we'd call it science. At the time, it was called natural philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's like, there's actually a book, uh, called the light ages, which talks about the monastic scientists who, who were around in the middle ages and all of their, all of their scientific contributions. So it's well worth reading. Mm. And if you want to see a great science fiction book that kind of shows, uh, what the church was like back then, uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. Where it shows, you know, this this monastery out in like the New Mexico desert or Arizona desert, collecting everything they can after a nuclear apocalypse to return, you know, recover science, recover knowledge, to to do this natural philosophy, mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's it really shows that 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 was what the church was doing at that time. Yeah, classic sci-fi novel. Great uh, one. So, <laughs> so Picard wants to convince Nuria that he's not a god, and that's like we mentioned, he brings her up to the ship. This is another thing that Picard has a tendency of doing, by the way. He bringing local women up to orbit. <laughs> let let me show you the view from my apartment. Exactly. <laughs> so in the episode Justice, Rivan, uh, then later Marasta Yale in First Contact, and of course Lily uh, in the episode First Contact, and then Lily in Star Trek First Contact, the movie. So uh, mm -hmm. it's a thing. Yeah. Riker going undercover, going badly, and Picard bringing women to show them their, their world from orbit. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, he, and he's, he's, he's got a speech here where he talks to her, uh, he's trying to explain that we're just more advanced technologically than you are. Mm -hmm. And he uses this analogy. He says, did your people always live in huts? And she's like, no, we found, we found tools in caves. So the logical inference is that our ancestors used to live in caves. Like, okay, so why do you live in huts now? Well, huts are better. So why didn't your ancestors live in huts? Well, they must not have known how to make them, but now you do. And he's he's like, "Welcome to my bachelor pad super space hut." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so he's he's got this analogy that he's working to try to communicate this is just we're just like you but we're more technologically advanced. And and that's actually it's pretty it's it's pretty nicely done. You know yes. the dialogue is nicely written. She's he's he's relating to her in a way that she could understand. She's responding. Nuria's acting is a little flat, <laughs> but you know she's been told to act like a scared Vulcan. So whatever. But then he kind of over convinces her, and she doesn't realize 
okay, you are like us, but you're way advanced. So please bring the six flood victims from last winter back to life. (laughs) Right. And it's like, oh, no way to do that. So let's go to sickbay where someone is conveniently dying right now, and I'll show you how we can't bring them back. Yeah, it's that she... He 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 finally he thinks he's convinced her, then realizes no, I really haven't like changed your mind. You still think I'm a magical being, and yeah, and then showing her that uh, the the science it, it felt kind of ghoulish actually using that mm-hmm. death as a way to convince someone else of something. It is I don't know like a private moment for someone dying. Yeah, uh, it's also um, it's just so convenient. Yeah. Well, yeah, that <laughs> too. Um, there's no Vulcans would, on board. It would, be, it would, it would be better if he had told her a story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and said, you know, my mom died, and yep. I would do anything to bring her back, but I can't. Right. And the same is true of your flood victims. They, if someone has just now died, mm-hmm. or I, I, we could maybe restart their heart. We could maybe save that person, but after a certain period of time, we we have no way of helping them. And so even if we had the bodies of your six flood victims, there's nothing we could do for them this much later. Right. Right. So uh, back on the planet, there's a thunderstorm coming in and uh, Liko is interpreting that as the Picard's uh, wrath. In Mm. Liko's favor, this is an unseasonal thunderstorm. It's not normally the season for thunderstorms. So that could make it more reasonable to think it's a sign of from it's it is literally a sign from above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um and so he's coming up with, you know, things we need to do, you know, to to harm Troy in order to appease uh the Picard. And Troy there she has a line here, you know, that's the problem with believing in a supernatural being trying to determine what he wants. And on the one hand it's like, well, it actually kind of is, but luckily, mm-hmm. you know, from a hey, Christian point of view, Urim and Thummim. Okay, just saying, Urim and Thummim. Yeah, <laughs> the the um, give them a magic eight ball. Just shake this, and whatever it says, that's what the Picard wants. Um, yeah. So, but I mean, it's that's kind of from a Christian point of view, in Jewish point of view, we have revelation for that. That's how we determine mm-hmm. what God wants. Is we have. The, his messages from us and that's what dr baron was trying to tell picard is help these people by giving them <laughs> revelation so that they know what to do with this new worldview that they have uh picard's alternative is interesting uh, he beams down and uh he's going to uh, what uh Lico is going to shoot him with an arrow to prove that the picard is an immortal being a supernatural being uh and picard's willing to let him do it sacrifice and, and- his own life and this is mm-hmm. where Liko is the most stupid, yeah. because he's there, he's standing right there saying, I am not a deity. Mm-hmm. If someone you think is a deity tells you they're not, <laughs> trust them on that. Right. Yeah. So well, that's, that's opposite to Ghostbusters, then. If someone asks you or God, you say yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, in this case, if he's telling you he's not a deity, the, then either he's really not a deity, or he really doesn't want you to know that he's a deity. Either way. Mm-hmm. What you're about to do is not going to end well. So, yeah. um, but to Lico's credit, in one sense, or to uh, understanding him, he's got this idea that he's convinced that Picard can bring back his dead wife, and that has yeah. sort of driven him a little mad in in that sense. So, there's a little bit of understanding in that. 
And it's it's not unreasonable for him to think that because he ha- they're ambiguous about did he really die yeah. or not. Um, but he be- he believes he died, and mm. the injuries he sustained were gone mm. when he woke up. So um, so he he has reason to think he what he himself was brought back from the dead. And if if Picard's you know doctor slave could do that for him, <laughs> then then. Mm. Picard could bring back his wife. Sure. Why not? Right. Right. So, uh, in the end, Picard, who, who apparently, uh, Crusher doesn't do a very good job of healing the wound, uh, with the regenerator, because yeah. he's got a sling, uh, at the end. Yeah. She, but, she left it, she left it, you know, to see, well, that was stupid. So I'm going to make you deal with this for a little while to yeah. in punishment. <laughs> no. or, or to, so that the Mintakins don't think that he's, uh, you know, that he's a god again because he can heal that wound immediately. Maybe you know we yeah. we, we we just pretend to have a sl- you know we have a sling to pretend he's still injured. Um, but you know we have this going away party where he, uh, he you know they give Picard this gift of uh, some sort of weaving tapestry. Yeah, it's tapestry mm-hmm. yeah. that we'll actually see in his office. Uh, it was ready room later on in the series. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot that that this was the episode where it came from. Yes, yeah, um, and uh, you know that. They they go off, and it's interesting. The Matakins can have a hard time believing that. Why would you want to study us? You're so advanced. We're so primitive compared to you. And the answer is, is you know, we are, we were as you are, and so that helps mm-hmm. us to know ourselves. Which is why, which is why anthropology exists. We, to know ourselves today, we study w- what we were in the past. So um, that's that sort of information. So and that's where things wrap up. So uh, last thoughts? Any f- final notes, Father Corey? Nothing here. Jimmy? This episode had good elements. It had some bad elements. On balance, I'd put it above the 50% line in terms of quality. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you just put a pin in Roddenberry's anti-religion humanist yeah, stuff. The, there's the anti-religion, there's the shaky acting on the part of the Mintakins. Um, there's the bad dialogue, but there's good plotting. Mm-hmm. And and I like the plotting. I like that they're even if they're they've got some anti-religion lines in here. I like the way they otherwise handle the issue of religion. Right. And as you said, it wouldn't take much to fix all that um, if only yeah. they had. Great. Excellent. So we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Santa S, Kathy S, Mark M, Father Nathan L, and Andrew B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think of Who Watches the Watchers. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media. You can send an email to trek at sqpn.com or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, Indiscretion. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, the Mintakins are beginning to believe in a god, and the one they've chosen is you.